0: Good morning. Hey, how about that all skate stuff? Wasn't that not amazing? Yeah. And, and I wonder, hey, show of hands, how many of y'all got to be a part of something in All Skate Weekend? If you were here for worship, that counts too. Yeah, Right. I mean, it was an amazing weekend for all of us, I, I think, and I know it was an amazing weekend for my family. Uh, we got to participate in, in all the different parts, and it was such a fun time for us. On Friday night, my girls and I got dressed up for Daddy Daughter Dance. Um, they looked pretty wonderful. I was also there, um, and, and we had a great time together just going around. They got to hang out with their friends, and I got to hang out with, with some of my friends, and uh, there we are right there before we went out, right? Yeah, they look great, don't they? And, um, and we got to dance, and we got to connect, and we got to eat way too much cotton candy. Um, and it was, it was a blast. And then on Sunday morning, my whole family showed up for serve day. I think we got a family picture right there. Um, that's me and my six kids. Uh, and uh, no, and my whole spiritual family was there, you know. Um, all six of the kids were there, but our small group was there. So many, so many of you, and it was such a blast to go out and serve. Uh, my family, we tore down from Daddy-Daughter Dance. We set up. For joy prom and when we were done, yeah joy prom, and, uh, and when we were done we got in our car to drive home and we went down 1792 and as we were leaving we actually saw in the parking lot of, of one of the restaurants the, the prayer team project. People huddled around holding hands with their serve other shirt on, praying for this community. Ah, man, it just warmed my heart, it was so cool. And then that night for Joy Prom, um, Joy Prom is so much fun because our special needs community gets to go out and have a dance, and it was a great dance, right? Yeah. And, uh, and what I love about it is what we do is we had uh, 83 special guests, VIPs who were there, and they were paired with, with dates, people from leaders in our student ministries or throughout the church who got to escort and dance and make sure that they had an amazing time. My son was one of the dates. I had no idea until I got there. How cool is that, you know? And uh, he's there in this picture wearing a tie around his head. I don't know, kids today. Uh, fashion, I don't get it. Um, clearly. And, uh, and, and then my daughter and I, my daughter and I, we just showed up to be part of the festivities. And we got to dance and, and celebrate and just see God at work in our, in our midst. And it was such an amazing time. And then Sunday morning, worship for us, Biggie Church was awesome the worship team who knew that we could get a hundred people on this stage singing at the same time it was such a cool thing and really the whole weekend was just a testimony to God's faithfulness the way he is transforming this community and bringing about such significant change and you know that word transform transformation it's kind of a crazy thing you know we we hear it we we hear it sometimes, and I think wonder, what does real transformation look like? Where do we even see that? Well, fortunately, pop culture has given us a, a few cases of transformation that we can see. And I'm sure you guys have thought of some, but maybe, maybe one that you think of is, is Dr. Jekyll. You guys know about Dr. Jekyll, right? He was, he's a doctor. Here he is in a movie poster from the 30s. I, I know he does look a little scary, but trust me, it gets worse because an experiment went south, and then he became Mr. Hyde, right? a significant transformation that he went through. And He's not the only transformation we see. Maybe you're into cars, and, and you really love souped-up, speedy cars like a, like a Camaro. Here's a Chevrolet Camaro, and what, is, what does this car turn into? Turns into, yeah, a transformer. Bumblebee, there he is. Of course that car turns into a robot from outer space. That makes sense, I guess. Uh, but, you know, Bumblebee himself went through quite the transformation, because if you remember the 80s, that's what he looked like. So his working out has paid off, finally, you know. um, And that's not the only transformation that you see. Maybe you're a Disney Channel fan and you remember Miley Stewart. That was the the character's name on the show. Trust me, I got it right. And Miley Stewart, by day, mild-mannered teenager. But by night, the sensation, Hannah Montana, right? You know, that's a pretty big transformation. And of course, superhero culture is full of transformations that people go through. I mean, you could think about, maybe you think about Diana. Diana seen here sporting quite the fancy hat. Uh, archaeologists in her, her day job, but when the world needs saving, who does she turn into? Wonder Woman, right? And then my very favorite superhero transformation of all is what happens to Mark Ruffalo. I know that's not his alter ego's name, Bruce Banner. I know, I know. But really, when we watch these movies at this point, we're just watching Mark Ruffalo. He's just acting like himself. That's really what's happening. And who does he turn into? The Hulk. There he is with the Avengers assembled. You know, transformation. It, it's fitting that the examples of transformation that we have are all fictional. Because have you ever tried to engineer your own real, lasting transformation? It just doesn't work. I mean. I've been smitten by this idea of superhero uniforms. I wear the same thing every day, and yet I have not, after six years, manifested any superpowers. I have tried, it does not work. We cannot bring about our own transformation. Can we? Can we? You know, we've been in this series about John learning about transformation, and, and one of the things that I've realized is that, you know, actually, I have gone through a transformation before. Got me thinking and I remembered a time years back when when Northland had a pretty unique opportunity see the the country of Namibia is in southern Africa and they were in the midst of this this crisis really AIDS and HIV they had one of the highest infection rates in the entire world And a lot of it was born out of a lack of of knowledge. People didn't know how you got the disease, how you could tell if you had it, what to do if you had it. And so it was a country in crisis. And some people who lived in Namibia developed this curriculum where they would go in to, to teach students. And they went to the government and said, we would love to bring people in. No cost to you. All we ask is that you also let us preach the gospel and the government was in such a bad place, they said, yeah, absolutely, we would love for you to come and, and do that. So they called some of their friends, pastors here at Northland, actually, and said, hey, we need 300 people. 300 people to come from, from where you are to come to Namibia and, and do this. And so we kind of said, hey, who could go? And, and 300 people raised their hands. I was one of them. I got to lead a team of high school and college students, and we went to Namibia for two weeks and got to go into the schools and teach kids about AIDS and HIV and also... Preach the gospel of Jesus. And it was amazing. And the things that you're thinking might have happened there, what happened? I mean, the lives of the students in those schools were changed. The lives of the faculty were changed. The families in these communities that we were serving absolutely, absolutely changed. Our lives, man, were changed. We were so affected by the work we were doing, as were the people here who sent us, who prayed over us, and, and offered up their, their funds to make this trip a possibility. And it was, it was amazing. And the very last day of the trip, we gathered for a celebration. You know, the, the guy who had brought us all out there, Yos, got up. We were at this, uh, this mission camp, and he got up on the mic and, and was just thanking us for the impact of the work that we had done. And he was telling us some stories, and it was so cool. And he said, and we're going to have a feast. It's going to be a party. You're going to love it. But by the way, we may not have enough food for everyone. Like, wait, what? How do you not have enough food? For, like, we flew from America. You have a very exact head count. This should not be a problem. But he said, just don't eat more than you need and you'll be okay. And I was like, this is such a strange, why, okay. And he prayed and, and we went to eat. And I was, I was kind of in the middle of, of the line. But I started thinking about not having enough food. And I was like, you know, it's just one meal. I, I'll be okay. So I decided I'd move to the back. Make sure everybody else got their food first. So I kind of go conversation by conversation, just working my way back the line until I get to the back. And as it was happening, I noticed somebody else doing the same thing. And now I'm at the very back of the line, standing next to her. And I turned and said, hello. She probably said hello back. Her name was Jen. We got to talking. And, and I discovered a few things. First, she and I had the same taste in music. One of us, maybe both of us, were wearing band t-shirts. And we talked about music a lot. And um, I also found out she lived in, in St. Pete. So as interesting as she might have been, that's a two-hour drive away. She was not that interesting. I don't want to drive. And so uh, I decided that, man, that's a, it's a bummer that we had such a great connection because I will never see her again. And we got on a plane the next day to fly back home. But first we had a, a layover in Germany, 12 hours really, a lot of time to kill. So I decided that I would go into a, a bookstore. And I would, I would look at some of the, the cool art design photography magazines, those were passions of mine. And so I'm, I'm leafing through and I pick one up and I'm like, oh man, look at this, this is so cool. And I turned to my right and guess who was right next to me in the bookstore? It was Jen, standing right there again. I was like, oh, hello again. And we started talking, it turns out she loved photography too, she had her own darkroom. And we had a lot of things, more things in common. And we kept talking. I did manage to confirm she still lived in St. Pete, had not moved since our previous conversation. That was still very inconvenient. And so, again, I was like, man, we had just hit it off. But two hours, hours—it's a lot. So I went back to America. So did she, St. Pete, Winter Park. Not going to happen, right? A couple days later, I went to go see a concert. And not just any concert. I went to the warp Tour a full day of sweaty fun and punk rock music and it's all outside in the middle of the summer because Florida, I guess. And, uh, and while I was there listening to an Irish punk rock band play, guess who walked up? It was Jen again. And now I have run into her over three different continents in less than a week. And I'm like, well, gosh, what in the world is going on here? And we hung out the whole rest of the day and had so much fun, so much connection. And at the end of the day, we swapped numbers, and I'm still like two hours, but I don't know. Sure, let's change. We'll exchange numbers. We'll see, but probably not going to go anywhere. And then a week later, guess who calls me? Jen called because she was in town to meet with the team she had gone to Namibia with to have dinner and just catch up on what their trip had been like and what the re-entry experience had been like. And now we're talking on the phone and she says, hey, I'm in town for the dinner. I'm I'm gonna be here for one more night. Anything fun going on? Well, it turned out there was, see? There was this strange, bizarre event happening in Orlando on the night that she was free. It was this sort of niche, underground wrestling happening at a bar in downtown Orlando. And I know you're thinking, please don't tell me you asked her to go, but I did. I happened to have tickets, and it was so sold out, and everybody was talking about it. Everybody wanted tickets, and I was so proud. And it's not, I'm not a wrestling guy. I mean, it's cool if you are, and this was not normal wrestling. It was really strange. And, uh, and so I said, hey, you want to go to this wrestling thing with me? And she was like, I guess, sure. And, uh, and so we went out, got this great dinner at this vegan restaurant. Things were going great. And then we go get in line to get into this event, and people are trying to buy tickets. I mean, people are like, everybody wants to go. Lines all the way around the street, around the block. And we get in, and I realize immediately I've made a serious mistake. Because I don't know what I was thinking. People are like hitting each other in the face with blocks of wood, and there is blood everywhere. And guess what? They were not talking kindly to each other. No, they may have used some bad words that were very inappropriate. And, and especially the way they were talking to the few women who were there. Jen is 5'3", so I, I was like hiding her from them and we are figuring out how can we leave because I have clearly not done my research here. And so we left pretty quickly and instead we went to the Grand Bohemian, the hotel downtown, there's a piano bar downtown. It's a far cry from, from this wrestling event, very nice and prestigious and upscale. And we had an amazing time. We spent the whole night until the wee hours walking around, talking and talking and talking and talking. And it was an incredible first date. So good of a first date that we decided we would go on a second date. And it was worth it. I drove out to St. Pete um, that time. And then we had a third date and a fourth date and a bunch of dates. And then before I knew it, I was getting down on one knee and asking her to marry me which we just celebrated the anniversary of this last Tuesday. And then suddenly, yeah. And then we got married, it got even better. We got married a year to the day of when that plane took us to Namibia. We didn't plan it that way, we just realized the week before we got married, oh my gosh, one year. And then 10 months later, our son was born. Surprise, you know, that was quite the shock. And what's crazy is that in what felt like the blink of an eye, everything about my life had changed. Where I spent my time, where I invested my life, who I was with, where I lived, everything changed. And it didn't change because I set out with a great plan. And it didn't change because of anything I did. It changed because I had found someone worth rearranging my life around. You know, we've been in this series going through John, And Pastor Matt's been leading us through, it's called Awaken, and we've learned what it means to follow the light of the world, Jesus, and what happens when our hearts and lives awaken to the work of Jesus, and we experience what it means to really, truly be fully alive. And we've been going through the prologue of of the book of John that the Apostle John has written, and this week we really dive into the story, the story of John the Baptist, I'm going to read this to you now. It's also printed in your worship guide if you want to read along or right here on the screen. We're going to look at John 1, 19 through 28. And let me read this word to us. This was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders sent priests and temple assistants from Jerusalem to ask John, who are you? He came right out and said, I'm not the Messiah. Well, then, who are you? They asked, are you Elijah? No, he replied, Are you the prophet that we're expecting? No. Then, who are you? We need an answer for those who send us. What do you have to say about yourself? John replied in the words of the prophet Isaiah, I am a voice shouting in the wilderness, clear the way for the Lord's coming. Then the Pharisees who'd been sent asked him, if you're not the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet, what right do you have to baptize? John told them, I baptize with water, but right here in this crowd is someone you do not recognize. Though his ministry follows mine, I'm not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandal. This encounter took place in Bethany, an area east of the Jordan River where John was baptizing. I mean, this is quite an exchange that we see here, right? And do you see what's happening? Well, let me give you a little bit more context on John the Baptist first. John the Baptist... Most of us encounter him at the beginning of our lives in the story of the Nativity. His mom, Elizabeth, was a relative of Mary's. And before Jesus was born, an angel appeared to his dad, Zechariah, and, and told him that even though Zechariah and Elizabeth had no children, couldn't have any children, were too old to have children, that they were going to have a kid. So John was born before Jesus. He was the miracle baby. And his dad had this prophetic pronouncement about him. That he would be a forerunner to Jesus. And that he would live in the wilderness until his ministry started. So John, people knew John was a miracle baby. People knew this about him. And then suddenly, after being in the wilderness, his ministry did start. He began to preach. He began to tell people to repent and turn to God. He began to baptize people. Crowds began to form. People noticed something was up in his life, that something had changed. And that is the reason that these Pharisees showed up. And what did they ask? Three times they asked the same question. Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? And this is not a question about identity. They knew he was John, the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. No, this was a question where they were trying to get at the transformation that everyone had seen happen in his life. And hey, to be clear, those Pharisees were not the only people wondering about that. The crowds who were gathering were gathering to figure out what it was that gave him the power to do what he was doing. Because when people see real transformation, they notice. They see. And they want to find out what's behind it, because at its root, real transformation is something that all of us, all of us crave. And you know, we can actually find the answer to that who are you question, to the question of what led to the transformation. All we need to do is look back just a few verses beforehand. Because the Apostle John tells us, tells us what led to the transformation in John the Baptist. And here's what he wrote about John the Baptist, that John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. You guys know that word, right? Witness? You know that word. Usually witness is a word that we hear in the context of a, of a trial. Someone saw something somewhere and they're called forth to give their account so that the judge and the jury can hear it and consider it evidence that they need to consider. But the biblical meaning of, ev- of witness is, is bigger than that. It's fuller than that. And the easiest way to see that is for us to look at the actual word that John wrote here. We translate it into witness, but the word that he wrote in Greek helps us understand this passage more fully. And so here we see he was simply a witness to tell about the light. But if we drop the Greek word in for witness, we see that he was simply a martyreo to tell about the light. A martyreo. Now, martyreo is a fascinating word. You may have already heard what's in there. It's where we get the word witness from. But if you go back into ancient Greek, what led us to the word martyreo is actually the word martyr, which is where we get the word martyr from. So both witness and martyr have the same word at their root. And if you actually go read in these Bible dictionaries, when, when you look up the word witness, they'll tell you it means, yes, witness in a legal and an ethical sense. But it also has as a second meaning martyr, which is crazy because we think of these as very different words. But when we really examine what's going on here, I think we'll see more fully what they both mean and how, how they overlap how they overlap. So what's a martyr? I mean, usually when we think of a martyr, we think of someone who has died for their faith. Someone who believed in Jesus so firmly that when they were persecuted, when they were prosecuted, when they were punished, and they were put to pain to the point of death, their faith didn't waver. And I get that we emphasize the dying part when it comes to martyrdom, because someone who has that strong a faith, someone who goes through those sort of trials and tribulations, we should hold in esteem. We should revere them. We should honor the sacrifice they have made. It is no small thing, right? It's a big deal when we, when we hear about these martyrs. But I think even for those martyrs, the point for them was not, was not the death. In fact, I think we can see this. Think about the famous Jim Elliott quote. Jim Elliott was a 20th century evangelist. He spent years preparing to go reach out and preach the gospel to uh, people who were in the Americas. And when he went there, they actually killed him. He died a martyr. And very famously, Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. See, for Jim Elliot, the point in all this was not death. The point was actually life, real life. He experienced a transformation in his life that he was compelled to share with others, and he was willing to arrange everything around. And that is the case not just with Jim Elliot, but with other martyrs, John the Baptist, Matthew, Mark, Stephen, people in the Bible we can see who did die for their faith, and all sorts of people we can see who... Died because of what they lived for. Because their very lives were living testimonies to the goodness and the power and the transformation that Jesus brings about. Those people arranged every part of their lives as best as they could around the gospel. And they did that with life and with joy. And you know, this is not just a fuller way for us to understand what it means to be a martyr. It's actually a fuller way for us to understand what it means to be a witness. Because, you know, the truth of the matter is being a witness is more than just seeing Jesus, right? To paraphrase Jim Elliott here is to see Jesus and then to respond by rearranging our entire lives around him. Which is a big deal because, you know what, being a witness is not an uncommon experience. Bearing witness is something that we do every single day of our lives, pretty much every moment. I mean, maybe we're bearing witness to Jesus, but there's a lot of other things that we bear witness to also, right? Other pursuits, powers that we vest in. Maybe, maybe in moments, uh, your life might be a witness to the, to the power of fame or to the pursuit of beauty or of accolades, or achievements, or of power itself, or or maybe, maybe it's to the power of wealth, the power of greed. You guys are familiar with Ebenezer Scrooge, right? Ebenezer Scrooge, here's a picture of him from my favorite version of A Christmas Carol, Mickey's Christmas Carol. It's the best version of all. Uh, Maybe the book is a close second, Uh, but here he is, and Ebenezer Scrooge's entire life is revealed in these series of visits he had by these ghosts of Christmas. We see when he visits with the ghost of Christmas past who he was and how he became more and more obsessed with wealth and money. Here he is stealing a lump of coal from Mickey. I mean, come on, really? And, and then we see him when he visits with the ghost of Christmas future. And where is he then? He's alone. He's dead. And no one cares. No one loved him. No one was with him. And he died in misery. And the power of his witness to the power of greed was so strong that it saved him in that story. It saved him. But it's a reminder that all of us are always bearing testimony to the things that we pursue. And the fruit that we bear in our lives is proof of where those pursuits don't just take us, but we'll take others as well. So that means that our testimony is going to be to our own power or, or to what Jesus tells us. In Acts 1.8, Jesus says this. It's one of the last things he said. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the world. Of the earth. Notice that Jesus is saying you will, you will experience the power of the Holy Spirit. If we follow him to all of his followers, we will experience that power and we will be witnesses. Jesus did not come along and say, hey followers, I'm so glad you're with me. Let me give you a couple of options for what comes next. If you'd like, I've got some Holy Spirit power. If you would like to receive and experience that, press button A. Another option for you. You could be my witness if you want. Just press button B and I will let that happen. No, he is not saying that at all. He is actually telling us that when we follow him, there are some certainties. This is a prophetic word about our future, about your future, that Jesus is telling them back then and telling us right now that simply by following him, we will experience the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we do, I think as a cause and effect, when we experience the power of the Spirit, we will be transformed and that transformation will turn us into witnesses for the power of God. Witnesses. This is a prophetic word that is true about us right now. And you know, we can actually see this expanded on in Galatians 5 as well. You guys familiar with Galatians 5? There's this great passage about the fruit of the Spirit in there that people love, right? I've seen it on t-shirts and keychains. We moved into my house, and about a year into it, we realized that our wallpaper in the kitchen has the fruit of the Spirit running along right there by the dishes. Like, oh, that's kind of nice. You know, the Bible is in my house every time I walk into my kitchen. And it's a popular verse because it's really pretty wonderful what it has to say. Let me, let me read this to you. You can see it here. Galatians 5, and 23. But the Holy Spirit produces not sometimes, not occasionally, produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. So, so, there's a byproduct that we experience when we follow Jesus. When we live by the power of the Holy Spirit, look at the list of things that show up in our lives. I mean, it's significant. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Who would not want these things evident in our lives? And we see in this verse how this happens. And listen, I used to misread this all the time. I cannot believe how wrong I got it. But I thought for the longest time that this was a list of virtues, that this was a list of behaviors that I needed to generate in myself so that I could look the right way, so that I could look like one of Jesus' people. But that's not what this verse is saying at all, is it? It's saying the fruit of the Spirit. These are the things that come about because of God's power, not because of mine. And you can see that revealed if we just rewind a few verses, again in Galatians 5. Paul writes this. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. And so we have seen the power of the Holy Spirit brings about that list of changes in our life. But now we see what Paul is saying, that there's actually one other way you can live. Paul is saying, power of the Spirit or your own power. There's no third option. And you got to pick one only two options on the table. And so now we've seen, if you go with the power of God, what happens in our lives, wouldn't it be great and helpful and useful if they also told us what happens if we live by our own power? Wouldn't that be helpful if the Bible contained that information? It sure would be useful, right? You could then know, if I live by my power, what's going to happen? Well, guess what? Right between these verses, in Galatians, There's this passage that tells us what the fruit of our own power is. And i got to tell you, it's not great. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outburst of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, sins like these, sins like these, this is not even a comprehensive list. But this is the list of things that happen in our lives when we live by our own power. I mean, look at this list again, side by side, when we live by the power of the Holy Spirit or when we live by our own power. And this is not a comparison of virtues and vices. This is not a list of the right way and the wrong way to live. No, this, this is a list of life and death. This is a description of what happens when we live by the power of the Spirit and we experience that abundant life and God brings about transformation in our own lives or when we live by our power and the best transformation we can generate is is nothing and we move towards death through our own power. And the thing about the fruit of the Spirit or the fruit of our power is that that fruit is not just visible to us. It's visible to everyone around us. I heard a lot of stories about, about how this happened in a great way from All Skate Weekend. People told me so many tales of the work God did over just those few days. And there are some pretty amazing stories. I think, I think maybe my favorite it's what I heard about my buddy Elijah. Elijah went to joy prom um, and, and his date was one of our student leaders, Becca. And they got all dressed up and, and man, Elijah, I gotta tell you, Elijah is one of my favorite people. That kid is so full of life and joy and there's just a vibrancy about him every time I see him. You can see it too in this picture of them walking down the red carpet. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> look at the, And look at that jacket. It is gold and shimmery. I mean, amazing, amazing. And I heard from, from his dad that they went out to dinner beforehand to Carabas. And Elijah was pretty excited because there was a gift card, so he was gonna get to pick up the tab. And when they walked in like this, the server, the host, saw that jacket and was like, I gotta know, what are y'all doing? Because you look amazing. And they told him all about Joy Prom, and, and, and the servers and the host started smiling, and they set him down in the restaurant. We got a picture that, the, that his parents took from dinner. They set him right in the middle of the restaurant. There they are. And over the course of the meal, I don't know everything that happened, but I know Elijah, and so I know, I know that he was on for this meal. I also know it because he ordered a $26 steak. <laughs> you know? Um, but over the course of the meal, they just had an amazing time. And everybody could see them having an amazing time. When it came time for the bill to get paid, the server came over and said, hey, so the entire time you've been here, Everybody has been watching y'all and seeing the joy radiating off of this table. And you have brought joy to the rest of the people in this restaurant. You have brought so much joy to all of us servers. And you brought so much joy to the management that the management felt compelled to pick up the tab for you. Because you have been a gift to us. Because the joy that they had in their lives was unmissable. And Elijah and Becca both love Jesus. And that is not a joy that they generate on their own. That is a joy that comes through the transformation that Jesus has brought about in their lives. The kind of change that no one can miss. That people are absolutely compelled to witness, to see, and to respond to. Like the management of that Carabas. I mean, just being in a restaurant, people couldn't miss what was happening right there in their midst. And when they got up and walked out of that, every eye in that restaurant was on them and every face was smiling because of the joy that they gifted to everyone else. You know, the power of the witness doesn't come just from what they say. It comes from what they live and what they reveal through their lives like we can see from Elijah and Becca. And we do, of course, need to tell people why we live the way that we do. But I know that there's a temptation for us, especially as church people, that we can maybe just live life however we're going to live it. It'll be fine. But we can just lean into the power of the words that we're going to say, and and that'll be enough, right? But, But it won't. And here's how we can see it. We can see it from this story of Paul Revere. You guys remember the midnight ride of Paul Revere, right? Kind of a famous guy got a picture of him right here. Little known fact, uh, Paul Revere looks just like Jack Black, which is crazy. I mean, like, what? I kind of think Jack Black has put all his money into pranking the entire world through the internet here. Um, I don't know. So Paul Revere was a silversmith in the Boston area. And during the Revolutionary War, he carried messages by horseback, sometimes even important secret documents. And he reorganized his entire life around helping the fight against the British. And one night, one night, they summoned him because of an especially important message to carry. See, the British had a really significant sneak attack that they had just sent out boats up the river. They were going to attack the, the Massachusetts countryside in this um, Middlesex County, and it was a big deal. A lot of boats, a lot of forces, and they needed people to go send the warning. So Paul Revere was, was commissioned to ride and send warning through all of these different towns and villages. And he did, and and it's commemorated in this poem that, that Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote called Paul Revere's Ride, perhaps the reason that he is famous now. And let me read to you part of this story. So through the night rode Paul Revere, and so through the night went his cry of alarm to every Middlesex village and farm, a cry of defiance and not of fear, A voice in the darkness, a knock at the door, and a word that shall echo forevermore. The British are coming. The British are coming. But here's the thing about the story that's so crazy to me. Paul Revere was not the only writer who was sent out that night. There was another writer, William Dawes. And William Dawes was summoned right when Paul Revere was summoned. And they were both entrusted with the same message. They were both sent to warn people who would be affected in the same way. They both had very fast horses, and yet we don't know anything about William Dawes. We don't have poems about him. We don't regale people with stories about him the way we do Paul Revere. Why is that? Well, I can tell you why. I can tell you why because of what happened when Paul Revere got to Lexington. He'd already gone through village after village and raised the alarm. But when he got to Lexington, it was 3 in the morning. And remember, there's a war happening. And he came into the public square, and he tried to gain entrance into the pub where everybody was. And the door was locked, and they wouldn't let him in. And he cries out, the British are coming. And do you know what they told him? They told him to pipe down, to shut up. He was making too much noise. Too much noise. He's carrying the most important message of their lives. Until, until... Somebody heard him. John Hancock, you guys remember him? Giant signature on the Declaration of Independence? He was in that public house. And he recognized Paul Revere's voice. And here's what he said He said, Come in, Revere. We're not afraid of you. See, John Hancock and all the leaders in these other towns and villages that Paul Revere rode through, they knew Paul Revere. They knew the way he had reorganized and rearranged his life. They knew who he was. They knew what he stood for. And when he came riding in for a message, they were ready. William Dawes. Nobody knew William Dawes. And when he showed up, never mind the fact that what he had to say was true and important, no one listened. But people listened to Paul Revere because they listened to his life. They believed his word. They believed his life. And when he showed up in the middle of the night, they were ready to receive what it was that he had to say. You know, being a witness, being a a martyr is a big deal. We read about the great cloud of witnesses in the Bible, right? We read those stories. And we can even see in other places the impact of being being a witness, like with Paul Revere right there. But here's the thing. For us, being a witness is simply the byproduct of being changed by Jesus. That's it. I mean, God loved us so much that he sent Jesus for us because we were perishing. I mean, we're dying on our own, right? We're just dying out here. But we can see in John 3, we can see in Galatians 5, we can see throughout the entire Bible that God was not content let us die, even though through our own power we are moving towards death. Instead, instead, (coughs) God sent Jesus, and with Jesus we can experience rebirth, with Jesus we can experience the abundant life. We can be freed from death, we can be freed to be fully alive, and we can awaken to the reality that life with God is not a move towards death, but it's a move towards love and joy and peace and kindness and the things that we crave and cannot find on our own. And we can only do those things because of what Jesus did. He lived the perfect life. He modeled what it meant to be experiencing abundance. And then he died the death that we had earned so that we would not have to. And he did that so that we could experience through his grace and through his love the power of God in our lives. He did that so that we could be fully alive and not just through surface change, not just through small changes, but by being made into new creations. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. The kind of change that we're talking about here brings about real transformation that we cannot manufacture for ourselves. The kind that makes us into living witnesses, proof of the power of God, and proof that the promises of God can be true for other people too. People who are hoping for that change in their own lives. You know, over the course of this weekend, I heard a lot of stories and I saw a lot of people manifest that transformation. I saw it in the dads who showed up on Friday night, who carved out time to spend with their, with their kids. I saw it in the moms who gave up their Friday nights too and stayed home so that the dads and the daughters could go out. I saw it in the volunteers, the people, so many of you who gave up their time to be here Friday night and Saturday morning and Saturday night and Sunday morning and Monday night, trading away something of value for something of value of greater value. And it's not just on these weekends that that happens. I get to see that all the time. In fact on Wednesday, on Wednesday I I went into the Johnny Polk jail in Seminole County. and I got to hang out with with some of our family there, people who are online right now, who I got to hear share stories of God bringing about transformation, significant change in their lives, the kind of change that the other inmates see, find compelling, and then find leading them to Jesus as well. Amazing stories that I got to hear. You're part of our family, and we're so thankful for you in the jails. Yeah. And you know, the truth of the gospel is that everyone who follows Jesus will experience that transformation. Everyone who rearranges their life will experience that life from death change that we're talking about, and everyone who does will be made a witness to the power and to the goodness and to the grace of God through the the way that the Holy Spirit brings about maturing fruit in our lives. So friends, if that's you, be sure to tell those stories. Share the stories of what God is doing in your life so that the people who are seeing you, and be sure there are people watching, the people who see the transformation that is happening, so that they can know why you've been changed so that they can know who the God is bringing about that redemption in your life, so that they can meet him as well and experience that same change. And listen, if you have not really started to follow Jesus yet, if you have not rearranged your life around him, there has never been a better time than right now to do that. There's never been a better day than today to start and never been a better place because you are surrounded by people who would love to help. And here's all it takes. You submit your life to Jesus. You follow him with everything. You follow him in, in your friendships, in your marriage, and your work, in your everyday going about life doings. and everything that you've got, you follow him. And you do that with other people. And if you don't have other people, we've got some in this room. They wear the orange lanyards. They're connecting. They'd love to take some of those first steps with you. Maybe, though, you already have someone in your life that you have seen changed that you could just call and say, hey, I want that change for myself too. I want to experience that transformation, that power of God. Would you walk with me? I I know that they would. And if you need a first place to go, if you're not sure a practical first step, We've even got one for you. We do a class called Belong and Grow. The whole point of it is to help you understand what it means to belong to the family of God, how to grow in the Spirit. You've already heard some of those answers, but come discover with us what that looks like. Walk with us. It's a small class that meets in the Hub after the 11 o'clock service, starting next Sunday for four weeks. We'll even give you lunch. We'll make it that much fun. And whether you want to go because this is the first time you've thought about following Jesus, or whether you want to go because you've never really fully arranged your life around him, we'd love to have you. I'll be there. It'll be a great time. And we can discover what it means to follow Jesus together and to rearrange our lives together. So follow us as we follow Jesus. It's what it means to be a church family, right? And the reason this matters is because I know with utter certainty that every person in this room one day, one day will die. But what would it look like if first every one of us lived, truly lived, truly loved? How would it change the world? How would it change our community and our families? If we were those people unleashed to live the abundant life that we were made for, unleashed to live in the power of the gospel, the power of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, What would it look like? Let's find out. Let's find out together, right? Let's shout out our praises to God. Let's sing songs of worship. And let's swap those stories as we walk through and find ourselves changed. Let's rearrange our lives together around Jesus. And let's see what he does in our families and in our communities. And let's see together how he changes the entire world because of this spiritual family. In just a minute, we're going to sing a song called Let's Do It Again. In the beginning of the song, we're going to stay seated. You can sing along, of course, but I want you to reflect as we sing on the transformative work that Jesus has already done in your life. I want you to sit and listen as God reveals to you the changes he's brought about and even the changes you're in the middle of right now. And as you sit there and think on that, if God is calling you to some big change, be listening and be ready to take some of those first steps. And then let's join together and sing as we worship our great God for what he's done. Pray with me now before we sing.